sometimes. The best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is the 250th episode. Much like my most recent milestone of gaining a media credential for the Augusta National Women's Amateur, reaching this mark, this 250th episode, would not have happened without listeners, friends, supporters. Your desire to follow amateur and collegiate golf is what has sustained the success of the back of the range. So thank you to everyone involved, and we're going to keep on going. No housekeeping items to tend to this week other than to say that I'm working on a very special recap episode detailing my experience at the Augusta National Women's Amateur. This will be an episode unlike any other previous episode you have listened to here at the back of the range. So stay tuned for that. It should be dropping sometime next week. My guest on this episode is Carol Semple Thompson. Another one of those names, those legends in the amateur game that I've always wanted to have as a guest here at the back of the range, and it finally happened. For those of you that have listened to the back of the range for quite some time, you know that I'm always fascinated by amateurs and their number of USGA appearances throughout their playing history. Many of the early guests on the podcast would have 11, 27, 32 appearances. I was blown away by this. And then I was able to meet Paul Simpson, one of my favorite guys in senior amateur golf. His number of USGA appearances is just a couple shy of his age. And Paul is 70. Finally, I think the most mind-boggling experience I had surrounding multiple USGA appearances was in 2020 during the first edition of the East-West matches at Merido Golf Club. Between 40 or so of the best mid-ams and senior ams in the country, Scott Harvey and I decided to count up all the USGA appearances in the room, and it came out to 637. 637 USGA appearances between around 40 players, and that's without counting my one USGA appearance in the 2012 US Mid-Am. How that went unnoticed is still beyond me. Well, you might be wondering what all this talk about USGA appearances has to do with Carol Semple Thompson. Well, it's pretty simple. No man or woman has ever teed it up in more USGA championships than Carol. The exact number? Well, it's it's in this episode. You'll, you'll hear the number. And when you do, I want you to pause the episode. Think about the commitment, the longevity, and the devotion to this game that it would take to hold that kind of record. And that's what the Back of the Range is all about. Devotion to amateur golf. She is also one of only five people to have won three different USGA individual championship events. The others, Joanne Carner, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, and Tiger Woods. And since Carol is a World Golf Hall of Fame member, she was in the room during Tiger's Hall of Fame ceremony. So let's get this episode started. Thank you again to everyone that has listened to and supported the Back of the Range. Very proud, honored, and humbled to have reached this 250th episode mark. And with that, Carol Semple Thompson, you're at the back of the range. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, I am I'm thrilled that you're able to uh to join me today. Uh this is uh this is an honor and uh to speak with someone that has 
accomplished so much in this game of golf, especially joining me on a podcast that's devoted to to amateur golf. Um, this is pretty special, and this is also the 250th episode here at the back of the range. That that has to rank pretty high in your list of uh, accomplishments and honors, wouldn't you think? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the tops. Okay. All right. We're getting off to a nice, sarcastic, facetious start. I think we're going to be in good shape here. Um, what, one of our conversations we've had, uh, previously before we're getting set up to record is trying to schedule some time. And, and I've been traveling and covering the amateur game. We had to work around your schedule as well. Uh, you, you actually were there in person attending the world golf hall of fame induction ceremony recently. You're a member of this, of the hall of fame uh, inducted in 2008. This must be the ultimate, I mean, is this just the ultimate family reunion or the ultimate high school reunion? Hey, that's a very good way to put it because there are so many good old friends who get together at something like this. I think last week uh, there were about 20 women who were past inductees and maybe 10 men, but all the women knew each other. They were all, We were all clustered in groups, just like... <laughs> just like high school. Like high school, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, when I think about someone being inducted into the Hall of Fame, yes, your name is added to that list, your your name's on the wall, and you have obviously your locker there, and that's going to be there for forever. But perhaps one of the aspects that many people don't think about is you get to, like we said, you get to reconnect with people year after year. Have you pretty much been at every ceremony for the most part since 2008? No, for the most part, I have not made it. I oh. mean, I made a couple, made a couple in the in the teens, but then I was home with my husband for uh, a number of years, so okay. sort of took a personal time there. So, uh, so you've attended this ceremony, and obviously, this is the one where your Tiger Woods is inducted, and um, you know, you're part of a very small club. You're one of only five people to have won three different USGA individual championships. The U.S. Am in 73, two mid-Ams, 90 and 97, and then four U.S. senior amateurs in a row from 99 to 2002. So it's a small group. It's you, it's Mr. Nicholas, Mr. Palmer, Tiger Woods, uh, your pal Joanne Carner. You know, if, if, a, if a champion's dinner at Augusta National needs a long dining room table, this club just needs a small card table. Um you know, you lost Mr. We lost Mr. Palmer in 2016, but do you reconnect over this fact, this small club, when you when you spend time with Joanne Carner or Mr. Palmer in the past, or Mr. Nicholas? Is is this a th- kind of a thing amongst you five? Well, I, I I can't really say that Joanne and I have talked about it a whole lot, and I certainly haven't talked to Tiger and Jack about it. But I always compare myself to well, I shouldn't should not compare myself, but. When I think about Tiger winning his three, he started with the junior, right. and he graduated to the amateur and then to the U.S. Open, and I was sort of the opposite. I started at the top with the U.S. amateur, and then I went down to the mid-am, and I ended up in the senior. So I, it's true I won three separate championships, but it really doesn't compare to the, to the other four people who have done that, in, in my mind. Well, I mean, I think it's, I wouldn't say, well, in my opinion, I, I think it's just a, maybe just a, just as equally as impressive, but you never turned professional. So really you, you played the amateurs that you 
you know, that were put in front of you and you ended up winning them. So I, I think it's pretty impressive. I think everyone else would too, but, um, but to each their own, I understand. So, well, believe me, I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> just thinking that, uh, it's, it's really nice to be compared to others who have, have been so outstanding. Yeah. Those four you mentioned are, I mean, they're the best. Yeah. Now, I recently had one of your former Curtis Cup teammates on the podcast, Martha Lang. She, uh, I have to give her credit with the uh, with the assist in putting us two together. Um, you guys were were teammates in '92, and then she was your captain in '96. Now we're gonna tell some stories about your accomplishments, but maybe we'll pivot and see if uh, you know what was your first time meeting Martha Lang. Oh gosh, I've known Martha. I knew her as Martha Jones to begin with. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure when the first time would have been. It probably in the um, seven early seventies, maybe. Yeah. So it, we go back a long way, and we had a wonderful time in September. We went to the to the fall meeting of the RNA. Martha sure. was my guide for that. So um, I had I, we, I've been a member of the RNA since the original group of women they took in and. I guess it was 2014, 2015, and I hadn't been able yeah. to get—I hadn't been been able to get back to St. Andrews as a member. So this past September was my first experience, and Martha was the best guide. We had a wonderful time. St. Andrews, except that I came home with COVID, and she didn't. Oh, well, that's not good. I don't know how that happened. I don't know either. I don't know because we were attached to the hip for a, a week there, and but. Uh, <laughs> We, for some reason, I I tested positive and she didn't. Huh. Well, there's a lot of uh, there. There probably was a lot of golf played, and um, I know there's. I think there's a handful of pubs in St. Andrews, if my memory serves me correctly. That had to have been a hell of a trip. <laughs> there's probably a handful of pubs. Yes, although I can't say that we really were that dedicated to pub. There were some other th- evening things that went on that week. So. What are some of the what are some of the things that you're able to enjoy? Obviously, members of the RNA, you're you're playing a lot of incredible golf uh, right there in St Andrews and, and at other the other clubs throughout the UK. But perhaps, what are some of the things you're able to enjoy as a member that most people maybe wouldn't think of? Well, we we can get tea times for one thing. Uh, as as guests cannot, we didn't, don't have to go into the um, what do they call it? The, lottery. Yeah. The lottery. Uh, so we can just pretty much walk onto the golf course most any time. Well, we played the new course sure. several times that week. And there was a, a women's tournament that happened on the old course. And then we played uh, a mixed event on the castle course. So we were right around St. Andrews for for the five or six days that we were there. And then in the evening, um, we went to a cocktail party at, at somebody's apartment, an American who rents an apartment in St. Andrews, and there was a, a big formal dinner Friday night of the, I guess that's, the, I don't know whether they call it, then there was actually an annual meeting mm-hmm. where we all went and sat in a room and listened to all the plans that they had for the clubhouse. They're going to redo the clubhouse. Okay. So there were some some business sort of things going on, too. What did you what did you think of the castle course? I've I've played the castle course and I've played the new course. I've played the Eden, played the old. So I've played uh, just about all of them except for maybe the 
uh, I haven't played the Strat, but I've played uh, played I played Jubilee. Boy, that place is hard. Uh, what did you think of the Castle Course? I, I thought it was nice. I enjoyed yeah. it very much. I mean, it was very different being way up on top of the hill and looking down to, on everything. Right. But right. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a nice chilly day, typical Scottish day. No rain, but chilly. So, um, and I was able to play with a. Um, former president of the USGA. Very nice. So that was fun. And um we didn't play very well, but it's okay. <laughs> I I've I've played I haven't played very well at the Castle Course either, but I I kind of equate that place to uh you enjoy the views and the uniqueness of the golf course and just have fun and don't really care what you shoot because the greens are incredibly tr- at least for me I found the greens just really really tricky. But just the unique shots and the views, I just chalk it up to just, you know, you can never have a bad day on a golf course. And it's a, it's just, I, that's what I've always taken away from the castle course. Well, I would agree with you there. I okay. thought the greens were, were tricky, and but I did enjoy the views very much. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you mentioned playing with a former president of the USGA. Um, not the first time you've been around a former president of the USGA. We need to go back to maybe a little bit of, your start in the game, which we tend to do here at the back of the range. Many of the guests have a story similar to they had a parent that got them into it by taking them to the golf course and, you know, letting them ride in the cart or cutting a club down, or maybe they have an older brother or sister, or maybe even a parent that's a teaching pro. But I, I don't think I have come across an example quite like yours when I guess when your father is one of the founding members of a club in your hometown, uh, I guess a club is going to find its way into your hands at some point. Well, yes, and I think my father was uh, very eager for us children. There were five of us uh-huh. to learn to play, and but my mother was probably even more eager. She she did not play golf until she met my father. She was a horseback rider. Okay, and she singled him out and caught him, and she decided <laughs> then and there that. She was going to become the best golfer that she could, and she became a scratch player. And she played in local events and took a lot of lessons from um, who she thought was the best teacher in Pittsburgh, and that was Bobby Crookshank. Right, yeah. He was at a club here in Pittsburgh in the 50s, and she used to go take lessons from him, and I, she dragged me along with her. So I, I he then became my teacher, and... He taught me a lot through the years. So it was really my mother who uh, pushed pushed us kids into the game, although my father always said that he had a rule that we children had to learn to play well enough to break 90. Right. And then we were allowed to quit. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, obviously that didn't happen with you. Now, Bobby Crookshank, for people that aren't too familiar, you know, at, at back in the day, you're, you know, a lot of these teaching professionals, they were in, incredible players in their own right i think he racked up um gosh probably a half dozen top five finishes in the u.s open between 1923 and 1937 what was kind of your instruction setup like i mean was it was it lessons was it playing with other kids you know now junior golf has just absolutely exploded it has for many many years but maybe what was kind of your you know upbringing in the in the game at that point well there weren't a lot of kids playing when I was growing up, certainly not a lot of girls, sure. more boys than girls, which is still the case today, I think. Right. Um, but I was, I often played by myself or with my mother. So, um, 
I, as far as the lessons from Bobby, he worked a lot on my short game. And um, I don't remember the specific things he said about my, my swing, but I remember him working around the green and showing me how to chip and putt. And, of course, back then, a lot of it was very risky. Right. The putting was very risky. Yeah. My father was very risky on his putting, and uh, so I picked that up, which has not stood me in good stead through the years, I don't think. <laughs> But um, still, I mean, it, it still worked fine for for those three championships that we were talking about. Sure, sure. Well, absolutely. Well, uh, you had you know so many wins in your career, but I, I you know, obviously we're not going to touch upon every single one of them. But there are a couple that I wanted to ask you about. You know, your first big win, Western Pennsylvania Women's Championship at the age of sixteen. You defeat your mother Phyllis in the finals, and then the other, the U.S. Am in '73 at Montclair. Your father at the time was the current vice president of the USGA. He gets to hand you the trophy. These are really two formative events in your competitive career. And, you know, obviously someone isn't born a champion. There has to has to have something to do with their surroundings and their upbringing. How did not only your parents introduce you into the game, but how did they help your competitive spirit blossom and take shape? Well, I was always an athlete. I loved any sport. I, I, I could have cared less about studying in school, but okay. uh, put me on a playing field and it was great. I played field hockey, lacrosse, basketball, softball, tennis, golf in the, in the summer mostly. Um, so I always was in a competitive arena and I loved to win. I, I never, once I got to actually out of college, I didn't play college golf. I was still playing all my different uh, sports. I played a little bit of college golf in the spring. Went to school in Virginia, okay. and we played in in a couple of things. But there wasn't a formal golf team for Holland's College. But when I got out and played in the summer, I, I found that it was better for me not to think about winning per se. I was always doing better if I played against the golf course and played against myself. Okay. So when I always approached match play. And stroke play the same way, just play against the golf course, and that worked the best for me. So I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about beating my opponent, per se. I was thinking about hitting good shots and playing against the golf course. So that was, that was my thinking. And I know that most people probably think that way nowadays, but I'm not sure that was the case all through the years. Sure. Now your parents obviously were very involved in the USGA. As I said, your your father or your father was a former president. Your mother served on on different committees. You know, I I remember I had Michael Beard on the podcast. He's the head coach of Pepperdine right now, and his his father Frank Beard played on the PGA Tour, and he he would tell me about stories of him during the summer, kind of catting for him, and it sounds like kind of that dream childhood. Now, did you? perhaps have unique experiences as a player, just obviously your parents being so involved with the USGA. I think, I think your father was actually the president of the USGA in 1974 during that, uh, during that U S open at winged foot. So do you have any memories of just maybe seeing, you know, inside the ropes of the USGA, so to speak? Well, yes, I think, I mean, I know, um, in 1954, they had the U.S. Women's Amateur Championship at our home club, Allegheny Country Club in Swickley. Right. And um, my father was a co-chairman of it. And that's where he met Joe Dye. And Joe Dye uh, 
talked to him about going on the USGA, but actually he put my mother on the women's committee of the USGA first. Okay. And then my father went on the committee in the, about 10 years later. But um, 10 years later, I, I mean, I, in 1954, I, I remember a little bit about it. I mean, I was six years old, and I think Alice Dye stayed at our house, and I remember her giving me a golf glove and encouraging me to play. And um, So I remembered that that championship a little bit. And then the next 10 years later in 1964, my father and mother took my older sister and me to watch a Curtis cup in Wales. Oh, wow. So they were, they were thinking about things like that early on. I mean, I was, let's see, in 64, I was 16, I guess. Oh my or seven. Gosh. Yeah. 16, 15, 15, I guess. Um, yeah, I was 15 because we went to Porthcall and watched the Curtis Cup women play in the worst weather I could ever imagine. <laughs> Sideways rain and um, freezing cold. And there they were out there struggling through their golf. And I thought, oh, this is this is terrible. This is very cool, but I don't want to. I don't want to play in that stuff. <laughs> right, right. But but there was a, a an American woman who was 16 who was on the team, and I thought, oh. At 16, she's on this big team, and I'm here. I am this little peon at 15, uh, but it really inspired me to think, well, this Curtis Cup thing is something that could be a lot of fun. So, I mean, it, my father back then was even thinking about um, probably glory days that could be could come in the future. Right. So, um, so then fast forward again another 10 years. Um, I won the U.S. Amateur in 73, and then I went and played in the British Amateur in the spring of 74, and it was played at Porthcall. Oh so gosh. I went and returned to Porthcall and won the British there, and then I got to play on my first Coders Cup team. So my parents, um, they I guess I, I knew a lot of the USGA people through the years, sure. as like Joe Dye and... Harry Easterly, Sandy Tatum, all, a lot of Billy Campbell, uh, a lot of these great guys who were so accomplished, good players, and so involved in running the game from the perspective of the USGA. So I felt very privileged to be able to do that. And I'm getting now. Did did your did you have any roles within the USGA, whether it's volunteer or or scoring or anything like that? What was I mean? Every kid has that summer job that you know some kids like to you know cut a lawn or work in a movie theater or, or you know something like that. Your summer jobs might have been working for the USGA. Well, I was playing actually. Okay. I was playing um, summer tournaments mostly. I so I, I wasn't. I was not working. Okay. I had the opportunity to not work, to go and play in, in tournaments, uh, which stood me in very good stead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, obviously, being at, uh, you know, graduating from Holland in, in 1970, you know, with a degree in economics and played all the different sports. And I, I watched your, your Hall of Fame speech in 2008, and I was struck by something really interesting. You mentioned that in the 60s and the 70s, it was uh, it was cool to be an amateur, and obviously a lot has changed in golf. I mean, the leading money winner on the LPGA Tour last year made three and a half million dollars, and 
the money in professional golf is astronomical, and I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon, which is, I think, why a lot of young players kind of go the professional route because, you know, if they catch fire and play well at the right times, they could be really off to the races with a lucrative career. But I think, you know, being a lifelong amateur is still pretty cool, and, and that's exactly what you did. Um, for you, what what really led you into the decision to not turn professional, to stay an amateur, and how has that kind of shaped, I guess, the course of your life, really? Well, when I graduated from um, Hollins in 1970, I, I did have a degree. I had my economics uh, degree, and, but I didn't know what to do with myself. It was a liberal arts education, and I, I really hadn't set a, a course for my life. So I went to my father, and I told him that I thought I was going to turn pro. And he said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> if, if you don't turn pro, I will support you for a year. I thought, oh, I kind of like the sound of that. So I did not turn pro, and he, I went to Florida, practiced really hard. I thought I practiced really hard. Now, this is, this is a, a young American girl who probably doesn't have a great work ethic like some other players these days, but I thought I practiced my golf pretty hard. And the next summer, I went out and played in tournaments, and I was just awful. I couldn't, I mean, I, I lost early in the match play events and I kind of got discouraged and I thought, well, I, I worked pretty hard over the winter and it just wasn't, it wasn't coming together. So I didn't turn pro then. And, and then another year went by and I still wasn't very good. And, and, um, I just decided to, to muddle along. And then I met a, um, I met a guy who was visiting Pittsburgh looking at real estate. I was supposed to be selling real estate. And he told me that he hypnotized people. So um, he said, he, I, he, I like to hypnotize young children who have coordination problems, but it would be really fun to work with an athlete. And I said, well, I am a little bit of an athlete. W would you work with me? And he said, sure. So I went to his house one evening and laid down on his living room floor with his kids running up and down the steps and and he hypnotized me and made a tape of it i listened to that tape for six weeks and then i won the u.s women's amateur oh, okay i mean he taught me how to relax and to visualize right and i i really hadn't known anything about that before I, it was such a revelation to me that that i could control my mind and so winning the the women's amateur was it was such a a huge thing for me and for my family. Sure. And then getting to go to the British Amateur the next year and then made, making the Curtis Cup in '74 was just I mean I was on my way. It was just right. I was never going to turn pro after that. Okay, so that was going to be the next thing I was curious about. It sounds to me that that the kind of the door was unlocked and off you go with this great success. You would perhaps think at that point you would have the the idea of okay now i got it figured out maybe now i'll turn pro that so you're saying that never was an option no no once i played on a curtis cup team that was it that was what i wanted to do okay. i wanted to represent the united states in the curtis cup match and and then the world team and i just thought that was so cool okay okay interesting because uh, you know like you said you know most most kids these days they they win a big amateur tournament and that leads into their professional career. But once you got your taste of Curtis cup, that was it. 
It really was. And and as I said, I I really think it was much cooler than to stay as an amateur. Uh-huh. I, I mean, nowadays everybody just assumes you're going to turn pro. Right. Um, and it wasn't quite that way back then. It sounds like golf is playing a really big role in your life. But if you obviously that's what your life is all about, golf all the time, you're not going to get the results out of it. What did you do when you weren't playing golf? What I mean, I, I don't even I'm not familiar with your career or, or you know, professional career or you know, were there other things that you did besides golf throughout your throughout your life? For a while, for about eight years I worked in a bank. Okay. Um, in the investment area. I was selling municipal bonds. Okay. Which kind of fit in with my economics yeah. training from college and and uh, I also like to ride horses, so I, I like to fox hunt. So that was what I did in the fall. So it was basically golf and horses and banking for a, a while, and then I met my husband, and he was very supportive of my golf. So eventually I, I quit working in the bank and just played amateur golf. Kept up my riding, too. I still still do some riding now. Uh, I'm a master of a hunt, master like being like being the president of a club, okay. so master of of our local hunt, which I love. Your um your longevity and level of play that you've sustained is really, frankly, what is so impressive and and mind boggling to to just see on just see in front of you, just look at. I mean, you've played in more USGA championships than any man or woman in history kind of funny that number right now is 118 which coincidentally is the episode number when jack nicholas was a guest here at the back of the range i just realized that a little while ago which i thought was kind of interesting but isn't there a statistic about jack nicholas that i read something like he played in something like 150 majors I mean that's not us that's not usga right but i think it's majors which it to me is astounding jack nicholas competed in 164 major tournaments see there we go that's incredible Mm -hmm. so my little piddling 118 usga championships is nothing (laughs) um okay carol i'm not going to argue i'm not going to (laughs) argue with the guest but if you say so um but uh, yeah, all right. We'll agree to disagree on that one. I'm not going to get into an argument. But yeah, 118 USGA championships. Um, a lot of the players now that that try and obviously bolster their world amateur golf ranking or you know make a Walker Cup team or a Curtis Cup team, you know they are they are playing college golf for the most part, and they are relying and benefiting from collegiate starts to kind of work themselves up the list. You know they don't just only play the summer uh, invitationals, what was kind of, I mean, can you kind of walk me through maybe like what your typical schedule of events were in a year? I mean, did you play a lot of, you know, a lot of casual golf, a lot of local uh, events? How did you kind of approach maybe just a a competitive calendar? Well, I did play in the local events. I played in the Western Pennsylvania Women's Championship, and I played in the Pennsylvania Amateur Championship. Um, but then I tried to travel to the North and South, the right. Women's Eastern, the Women's Western, uh, and then it would be the the U.S. Women's Amateur, the U.S. Women's Open, and then eventually the Mid-Amateur was added to the schedule. So I, oftentimes I was able to play in, in at least 
three USGA events in a summer. And through those years, I was blessed because if I made a Curtis Cup team, it gave me exemptions into the championships. Uh, so that kind of went on for a number of years. I kept having exemptions. And I once they started qualifying for all these championships, it it took all the pressure off of me because I had an exempt, exemption into these so that I could still manage to play in three or four USGA championships a year. And that's how the, the number that I played in sort of multiplied. Yeah. I was very lucky that way. And I was also very lucky that the tendency was for, let's see, in, starting in probably the mid-70s on, more and more young women were turning professional. Right. So that left the path forward for me to, to make these amateur teams. Because when the kids turned professional, then they would, the USGA would go back and, and name us mid-amateurs to the teams. So that's probably why I made so many Curtis Cup teams. Well, to put it in perspective, in a 28-year span between 1974 and 2002, you only failed to make the team three times. You have the most matches won, most points won in U.S. Curtis Cup history, and then also had those two successful uh, captaincies in 06 and 08. Your teammates included Patty Sheehan. I mean, I mean, so many teammates, but Sheehan, Angster, Christy Kerr, Vicky Getz, Martha Lang. I mean, just uh, Brenda Corey Keene. Just you know, the list goes on and on. You know, I spoke with uh, one of your players from the '08 team who considers you uh, you are her idol. This is Megan Stassi. I'm talking about. You know, four-time U.S. Mid-Amateur champion. Um, I'm guessing a captaincy is, would likely be in her future as well. So she told me the story of how she got engaged on the Swilkin Bridge in St. Andrews and how that was kept a secret from her. Did you have any any part in keeping that a secret? What was <laughs> yeah? I'm, I'm, some there had to be a lot of people involved with that. What do you remember so much about the 2008? Uh, Curtis Cup team. Well, I do remember hearing uh, some murmurings about that, how that might happen, uh-huh. but I but I wasn't directly involved in it. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, I, no, Megan's great. She blew me away in one of the mid amateurs that she won. Um, I think she beat me six and five or something in one of the in like in the quarterfinals of something. So she's a very strong player. Yeah, that's not a very nice thing to do to your idol, is it? I mean, come on, six well, and five, that's not very nice. <laughs> well, I don't think I was much of an idol then. Oh. Well, I don't know. I can't really speak for that, but um, that was before the – It was. I think it was before I was her captain. Sure. Now, the the women's mid-am game, I, I at least in my opinion, I think it's the the section of amateur golf that's the least repre- least represented. Uh, you know, even going back to last year, I think there was just over four hundred entries accepted into the uh, into the U.S. women's mid-am. Obviously, you know, having kids can cause a, an exodus from the game for for some time. But you know, you spoke about the benefits of um, you know just your participation in the game. How how does that section of amateur golf grow moving forward? I don't know. It's it's a big worry to me because okay. uh, I, I think you're exactly right. There, it's not thriving. That that age bracket is not thriving in for women's competitive golf. Because I think so many of these um, college graduates 
turn professional and don't make it on the whatever the mini tours. Right. And they they leave the game. They get a job and they they leave the game. They don't come back to it like the men do. They don't get reinstated. Right. They often get married, start families, and are working at the same time. They just can't they can't imagine playing competitive golf. So I'm worried about the like the 20 to 45 year olds. They're right. just not they're not competing, and I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I, I mean, I see that even in in club play. That a lot of the people who join clubs, they might join as a couple, but the women don't tend to play that much. The men are eager and out there playing all the time, but uh, the women are busy with other things. There, I think it's it has a lot to do with having families. Right, <clears throat> makes it very difficult. Obviously, there's the accomplishments on your your playing resume, and and yeah, we can go down the line and look at all the numbers, but. You know, as far as you travel, I mean, gosh, traveling the world, I mean, playing on, you know, f- you know, world amateur uh, competitions and, and Curtis Cup, I'm, I'm guessing some of your fondest memories of your life are really just around golf, but it doesn't happen without being playing, without playing competitive golf. Do you really, I mean, I'm guessing just by talking to you, you're not looking back on, oh, look at all the things I won. You're probably thinking about look at all the relationships I've been able to build over these years that would not happen without golf. Oh, you're exactly right. I mean, really, it, it was fun to go and compete, but the most important thing was the people I met, the friends I've made through the years, and that includes international people. I mean, just this past September, when Martha and I were in St. Andrews, we played one round with two British Curtis Cuppers. Uh, great old friends that we haven't seen that I haven't seen for probably 15 years, and it was we were right back just being great friends and remembering competition. That was just things like that have have happened through my life that I've just made so many good friends from all over the world. In fact, most of my good friends do not live in my hometown; they live elsewhere. Really, because I've met them through the game of golf. Interesting. Is there a, a place you haven't played that you that you've wanted to play for some time? I can't imagine there's any place that you can't that you haven't been to. Well, I haven't been. I haven't been to Hawaii. I haven't been west of of California. I haven't been to New Zealand or okay. Australia, Japan. I haven't been that way at all. Been mostly towards Europe, um, the British Isles, and and Europe. And so, I mean, there are a lot of places I haven't been. New Zealand would be kind of a bucket list item for me. Yes, Tara Eady in New Zealand is a Tom Doak and is supposed to be phenomenal. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's not uh, that's a long trip. That's that's a long long that, trip. Yes, that would be a long long trip. Oh, Although I'm hoping to go to Alaska this summer for the senior women's amateur. That's a long long trip. Really? You're getting now. Uh, so I have to ask, I mean, are you still, do we still have exemptions you're working with or where does your current status uh, stay? Do well, you... no, I, I don't have an exemption, although I, I might ask for one, um, but I don't have an exemption. I, I did qualify for the senior amateur last year right? by total happenstance. I was at first alternate and got in, but um, if I don't get an exemption, I would, I would try to tr- qualify because I would like to go to Alaska. That's awesome. I think that would be fun. 
That's see, that's that's really cool. I mean, someone that has played in as many USGA championships as you have, you're still like, hey, if I have to go qualify, I'm going to go qualify. Yeah, that's right. Of course. That's awesome. I mean, I, I it's okay. Right? I, it's okay if I shoot 85. Who yeah. Cares? Who cares? <laughs> well, uh, I care, but I don't. But I still well, put myself through it. Of course, of course. Um, I've never been to Alaska. That when I saw that announcement, I thought, wow, that is going to be interesting. Yeah, I think so. And I hope people will, will go. I mean, I, I think the senior women um, are probably the right group to be included in that because they have the, uh, they have the wherewithal to do it and, sure. and the time to do it. Yeah. So hopefully it'll be a success. Yeah, I, I agree. That That's, um, yeah, you need to have a a senior, um, either senior men, or senior women, but yeah, I think, I think you're hundred percent right. That's the, the demographic and that's the, that's the championship for Alaska. So, yeah. And then of course, if they put it in Hawaii, I'm guessing you'd be able to make that one too. Don't you think? <laughs> I would certainly try. <laughs> there we go. Twist your arm. <laughs> uh, there's this really great photo of, of you and Ellen Port and Joanne Carner from last year's U S senior women's open. And uh, actually, it was taken by Darren Carroll, photographer of the USJ, who's been on the podcast. And between the three of you, there's only 22 USGA championships uh, between you three ladies. And oh, is that all? That's it. Yeah, I know. Just just trying to try and do the best we can. Um, and and I guess so. If I my notes are right, Joanne Carner won the US Women's Amateur, wasn't it at Sewickley Heights? Isn't that the club that your dad helped found? Yes, she did. Okay. And in the finals was Marlene Street. And Joanne and Marlene are both really good friends of mine. In fact, I saw them last week at the Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, so, and I watched that. I played in that championship when okay. I was I was 17. And I qualified with a 91-90, I believe. Okay. I mean, I tried to qualify. Let me say I tried to qualify. Gotcha. And the medalist was... Shelly Hamlin, who was my age, and she shot seventy-one seventy. So I only missed being medalist by forty shots. Okay, in that's, that well, room for improvement, and, but that's okay. That's you in. <laughs> and well, I didn't qualify for match play. Okay, but I was in the championship, so that that's one of my hundred and eighteen, okay. which was fun. And I and Marlene Street stayed at our house, so. Um, I was very involved in watching the, the championship, and it was quite a quite a final to watch. I mean, Marlene really should have won that. I, I believe she missed; uh, she either three putted or missed a, a fairly short putt on the on the thirty sixth green to to win. And they went extra. I think they went an extra five holes. They did actually. It's the longest uh, match. I believe it's the longest match in USGA history. It went forty one holes. Yeah, and oh. and really, and Marlene was so funny about it. She said. Joanne only out drove me by a hundred yards, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's the way Marlene was. She just was so accurate and so good. And, and Joanne, oh, I love Joanne. She was, she was so much fun to watch. She still is. I mean, I was watching her last summer at, in the senior open. I had the pleasure of playing a practice round with her. Right. And then the two rounds of the, of the first two rounds of the championship. Yeah, I think it was I think it was Dottie Pepper that told me I think it was Dottie Pepper that told me that you always knew where Joanne was hitting balls on the range cuz you would see 
cigarette butts with that bright red lipstick next to it. Is that, is, am I getting that <laughs> accurate? Um, I think I would, uh, yes, I think that would be accurate. Uh-huh. <clears throat> That's yeah. Uh, yeah. That's got to be a, uh, a. I'm guessing she can she can tell a few stories as well. Oh, she's amazing. She's just great. <laughs> I talked to her. I asked her if she was going to play in the Senior Open this coming year. Uh, let's see. She's 82. She's 82 now. I think or 83. She's 82. I think. Yeah. And um, last year I called her and I said, "Are you going to go?" She and I both have exemptions into it. And um, I asked her if she was going to play last year, and she said. Well, I'm 82 and I can't walk and I have COPD, but but yeah, I'm going to go play. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to her last week uh, for this year, are are you going to go to the senior open? And she said, Well, yeah, sure, why not? So she's 83 now. <laughs> she's, she's like, and I, so I will go too. I, I'll go and you know slug around. I'm sure my game will be a little bit rusty, but that's okay. It'll be—it's so much fun to see people. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be at uh, NCR Country Club in Dayton, Ohio. So that sounds like a, that sounds like a good time. Now you, so I don't know why this popped into my head, but you know, I, you're mentioning Arnold Palmer. Obviously, he has this this great collection of uh, of memorabilia and, and just collection in Latrobe is legendary of all the artifacts and I'm guessing there must be a couple trophies or uh, items of yours uh, in in your house that you have now not that you would ever take them for granted but if you're walking past them and you see them on a day-to-day basis maybe they kind of perhaps blend in and you know oh oh yeah they're in that room but when when you see people look at maybe your trophies or your artifacts for the first time uh, are there any memorable reactions to seeing the physical evidence of, of your achievements in the game? Um, I don't have that much in the house anymore. I've given a lot of stuff away. I've got stuff at the uh, at a history center here in Pittsburgh, the Heinz History Center. Right. I've, I've given things to the First Tee. They're putting together a little bit of a display at the Pittsburgh First Tee. Um, I have stuff at the Hall of Fame. So it's kind of, I've kind of been dispersing things. I just gave some stuff to my to Allegheny Country Club, home club, and one of my favorite trophies, which is this is so weird. Um, it was it was I won it in 1964 at the Pennsylvania State Women's Championship. I won the second flight, and I got a pitcher, which was um, silver plated, and it, it had the logo of the Pennsylvania State Women's Golf Association on it. And, and my mother believed in having everything um, marked, so my name is on there for 1964. Wow. And in 19, this, this is kind of a long story, but in we 1980, do that here. that's okay. In 1980, my parents' home was broken into, and my father had a really wonderful display of all the trophies that he and my mother had won, and I had a few things there, and. Um, 1980 was when the hunts were trying to corner the silver market and it was, the price had gone up and people's homes were being broken into and flatware was being stolen for, you know, to be melted down. Sure. So they broke into my parents' house and stole all the silver trophies that were in the, the den. And we didn't hear anything about any of that stuff for 25 years. So fast forward to 2005 uh, we received a, a phone call at my house, my husband and I, and 
It was a guy who had been diving in a lake just north of Pittsburgh, Lake Arthur. There's an interstate that runs through Moraine State Park. And the police were looking for some guns that some felons had thrown off the bridge. So there were divers down in the water looking for these guns. Uh This this guy called us and he said, "I, I think I have something that you might want. And he had... He was feeling his way along the bottom of the lake, and his thumb hooked through the handle of something. He brought it up to the surface, and it was a pitcher. He took it to his the steel mill where he actually worked and cleaned it up a little bit, and lo and behold, my name was on it. And um, it was pewter by then sure. because the silver plate had all worn off. So we were we made the assumption. He returned it to us. So we made the assumption that whoever broke into the house that day was driving north and tossed the things that were silver-plated into the water right? and kept the sterling stuff. So I now have that um, beaten-up old pitcher um, <laughs> on display at my club, and I'm very proud of it because That's it's the first thing I ever story. won. That's a really <laughs> cool story. <laughs> it is. I think it's very cool. That's really neat. So, so I don't even have it here at the house to look at. Oh. It's it's somewhere else, but, but I love it. <laughs> That's a really cool story because, yeah, I know there's that great picture of you. Uh, well, there's a lot of great pictures of you with trophies, but there's this really great one that the USJ has with you in front of, you know, the Curtis Cup and U.S. Amateur and all the – and they're all shiny and polished and, and it's 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 great. But then you're the fondest – one of your fondest memories and one of the fondest trophies is this, yep. this pewter second flight. That's great. That picture that the USGA was interesting that John Mummer took from the USGA because he, he had it all set up at, at golf house. Right. But, you know, it's hard to take pictures of, of a silver trophy because everything reflects in it. Of course. So he had this all set up with black curtains and with a little hole for the camera to look through. And um, so, it was it was fun because my husband really liked photography, and John let him take a lot of pictures of, of the same thing. So it's been a nice day doing that. Yeah, I like that one too. I I've met Mr. Mummert, so I'm sure he will enjoy listening to that story. Um, <laughs> Good. So you like we said, we talked about just being uh, you know a mainstay on the Curtis Cup for for quite some time, and you know I'm sure if I had spoke with um, with any of the you know, college kids that were on the team with you. I know there were some mid-ams like Megan Stasi, but, um, you know, if I spoke to any of the kids, they would probably speak to all the, you know, your competitive spirit and your desire to win and the things that they would learn from you. What um, what are some of the things maybe that you learned from the younger players, younger teammates on these teams throughout the years? I really remember um, some of the younger players being very, very nervous. Not that I wasn't nervous, but... Right. But they, the idea of playing for, for your country really upset some of them. And it was amazing to watch uh, how they handled that or didn't handle it. Um, so maybe I learned a little bit from them that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't life and death. It was important, okay. and, and I, I would get nervous. But um, I think they, some of them really overdid it on the nerves. So I think I, I sort of trained myself to to not worry about it so much, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, I, do you think that they were concerned because of maybe the implications it would have on 
their professional career? Do you think they just were looking past it and thinking, okay, if I don't do well here, what is this going to mean down the road? Or do you think they just, for just the enormity of playing for their country, just hit them all at once? I'm sure it was a combination. Okay. I mean, I think the enormity of playing for your country is, is real. Uh, but there probably was some some concern about future ramifications. For me, it wasn't, it, that wasn't really much of a consideration. But, um, but it was nerve-wracking sometimes to be on the spot for, if you had to, if I had to, make a putt for, for my country sure. if I really had to. Of course, that was one of the things that, that turned me a little bit from turning pro, having to make a putt to win a championship or, or a, you know, an open or something that, that would have killed me before yeah. I learned how to, to how, it was before I did my hypnosis right. <laughs> and um, learned to relax. But I used to think, Oh, I couldn't possibly do the things that these, these people do out there on the tour. And even now, I watch the the players out there. They're making putts under such extreme pressure. They they've got to have such a good mindset, uh, and they're able to block things out. It's it's amazing to me. But they've been trained since they were kids. Nowadays, the kids are trained right off the bat to vis- envision their game, their shots, visualize their shots, and and to block out the people watching and to block out all the distractions and just concentrate on the shot that they're hitting. And that's a real talent. It sounds to me that, yes, you know, getting the right equipment and having the right swing coach and all those things are important because at the end of the day, you know, you could have a great mindset, but if you don't have the physical technique to hit the ball, it doesn't really matter. But I would. it sounds to me that mental approach is would you say that that's basically the the key to your success that today's amateurs and anyone else playing this game has to kind of get control of? Oh, absolutely. I think that's, well, so many people have talked about it. Was it Arnold who talked about the six inches of the, uh, up there in your head? I mean, you know, it's great to have all the equipment and have the, you do have to have some physical ability. Right. There's no doubt about that. And it's great to have good training, but but when push comes to shove, the the mental part is where the the success comes. At least, in my opinion, that's where the where the success comes from. That really the believing yourself that you can that the shot's going to happen, and letting your body do it, not interrupting your body. Visualizing is one way to block everything out. I remember thinking that I used to be nervous playing in front of people. And once I learned how to visualize my shots, I just, if I saw the shot going up there on the green, nothing else around me mattered. And I've kind of lost that through the years, but I love watching golf and television for that, just to see how people handle that pressure. And they just are in their own little worlds and hitting good shots and making great putts and great chips and, it's amazing. The level of golf has just gone straight up through the ceiling. Are, who are the players that maybe, I'm not going to ask you to you know pick favorites or anything like that, but what are maybe some of the tournaments or some of the things you're watching that really inspire you and impress you? Obviously, you're talking about how everyone's making putts, but you know, are there certain players that you're looking at that you know when they're near the top of the leaderboard, you're, you're making sure that the, the TV's on? Well, I don't watch as much television golf as I probably could. I would like to watch the women more than I do. The Asian players impress me with their mindset. They're 
they appear to be very relaxed. They just cruise along, and and again, I can't tell you specific names sure, because I just sure. don't know them. They're um, they're they're not cruising along, but they're not they don't get frantic at all. They just they just move along and in their own time, and they they just don't change their swings. Yeah. Their swings don't change. So I love watching the women. Um, the men are more maybe dramatic, <laughs> and they hit the ball a mile, which is hard to even imagine. But they are good. I mean, they, they make these incredible putts at times that are just, you think they, they have to be distracted and, and thinking about the trophy or the money or whatever, but they're, they're, mani- they're managing to, to come crashing through. Did you uh, did you watch the end of the players uh, uh, championship by any chance? I watched just the like the last couple of holes, like yeah. um, so. I I was pretty impressed with um, with them with yeah. Cam Smith. Yeah, yeah. He seen. I think he just one putted his way uh, on the back nine the whole way through. It was it was incredible. Well, the the last hole was a nail biter. Yeah. I mean, for him to hit it in the water and then get it up and down. I mean. It's just amazing. Yep. Just amazing. Well, Carol, I, I appreciate the, the time that you've uh, given me here at the back of the range. And, and it's really great to get to, you know, as, as Megan Stasi told me, every junior amateur, mid-amateur, every amateur needs to know who Carol Semple Thompson is if they don't already. So I'm glad that, um, you know, we could share a little bit more of your story. Now, I have a favor to ask you um, before I let you go. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to. So the U.S. Senior Women's Open is uh, August 25th to 28th, NCR Country Club in Dayton. You said you are playing. Is that correct? I plan to enter, yes. Okay. So my birthday is August 28th. Now, I I don't like asking for presents, but I'm going to ask this time. uh, If I can get myself to Dayton, Ohio, can I walk with you in a practice round? Of course. Okay. Do you want to walk when I'm playing with Joanne Carter? Well, that <laughs> sounds like a really good present. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, Joanne and I are going to play a practice round there. Well, so, on then, the 28th. All right. Well, no. Well, well, the, well, the 28th is is the the very end of it. So that's that's not going to be a practice round. Oh, thing, but, oh okay. But right. it'll be an early present. If I can walk with you and Joanne during a practice round, that sounds like a pretty fun day. <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, do you want to tell me which day you want to uh, walk, or uh, well, uh, we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk. We'll get it figured out. So, <laughs> okay. Um, I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range and um, enjoy the rest of uh, enjoy the rest of your spring. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you this summer. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol, for joining me on this episode of the Back of the Range. Don't forget, everyone, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every episode, all 250 of them, are available at thebackoftherange.com. And we'll see you next time, here at the Back of the Range.